Hey, funny people. Thanks for joining me here on this episode of Four Cents of Podcast. We're going to have some fun because I've got something to talk about. So stay tuned. Welcome once again to Four Cents a Podcast. I am your host, Ian Martinez Kassmeyer, and welcome again to the Reader's Corner's Poetry Spotlight to celebrate National Poetry Month, the month of April. This particular episode of the Poetry Spotlight is going to be a little bit different from what I did last week. Last week, I think I uh, highlighted the work of one particular poet, but this week, my intention is to do two poets. And the reason I'm doing these two particular poets in tandem is because of one very simple and very important fact. In most people's minds who know about them, they are almost inseparable from one another. And yet, if you read their work, there is absolutely nothing that they have in common aside from certain kinds of images. Uh, Their preoccupations are completely different. Their tones are different. And yet they are nonetheless intertwined in the minds of many readers who know them. I'm talking about Donald Hall and Jane Kenyon. So I hope you enjoy this episode very much. So let's go ahead and get started. Donald Hall and Jane Kenyon, the reason why I'm doing both of them at the same time on this particular episode is because of their inextricable link to one another. And the large part of that link comes from the fact that for 23 years, the two of them were married. And they were a couple for a total of 25 years. But before that, they were actually teacher and student. Donald Hall had been Jane Kenyon's professor at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. But how their paths crossed at that point uh, is very interesting, and I think it's worth hearing and worth knowing about, because it very much influences their work. So let's begin with Donald Hall, the elder of the two. Donald Hall was originally born and raised in New England, the New England area, and he was brought up by his parents. He was their only child. And during all those years, he grew up largely in and around the New Hampshire, Connecticut area. But even though he was brought up by his parents, he also spent a great deal of time with his grandfather on his father's side, the New Hampshire side of the family, and he spent most of his summers on his grandfather's farm, you know, doing things like pitching hay and so forth and feeding horses and getting things ready because this was uh, early 20th century America and things were a little bit more rustic in those days. Hall's father was also a great influence on him in addition to his grandfather. The two of them didn't actually get along very well by all accounts, and 
that that was largely because Hall's father always felt that he could never do anything right for his grandfather. His very, grandfather was very exacting, very much a, a self-made man, and very much a nitpicker when it came to、um, dishing out criticism. And in fact, one day, so the story goes, Hall's father came home from work, went over to his son's crib, and shook his fist over his son's crib and said, "He'll do what he wants." This became a, a famous Hall family story, because Hall's father had taken a job working for his father, Hall's grandfather, largely as a means of marrying his wife, Hall's mother, and having Hall. Making sure that、uh, he could support them.、Uh, he had initially actually wanted to be a teacher, but even back then, teacher salaries were minuscule.、Uh, but the money went probably a lot farther. But they were pathetic.、Uh, that that would have been the life he wanted, but the life he got was not the life he really enjoyed. What Hall wanted to do in the end was poetry, and in fact, when he was still a very young. Child, he started reading poetry. He began, as most young would-be poets do, with、uh, at least these days, do with Edgar Allan Poe. And from Poe, he then started reading Percy Bysshe Shelley and John Keats. And then from there, he found a lot of the modernist poets who were still fairly new writers at that point: E. E. Cummings, early Ezra Pound, T. S. Eliot,、uh, H. D. Hilda Doolittle. All these great poets from the early 20th century, and it had such an impact on him that at the age of 14 he started really taking poetry seriously. He decided that, for better or worse, he was going to be a poet the rest of his life. Hall eventually graduated high school. Then went on to attend a, a school that I think still exists in New Hampshire called Phillips Exeter Academy, sort of a, a prep school, a secondary high school,、um, because back in those days anybody who went to a public school was really not armed with the knowledge they needed in order to get into a university, especially an Ivy League one. But Hall、uh, managed to do that. He managed to get through Phillips Exeter. Was not easy.、Uh, he faced a lot of issues. Having not come from a world of privilege, going to Phillips Exeter and、uh, especially particular torment from one particular teacher who really motivated him to keep writing、uh, for the rest of his life, as most writers need to have in their lives. The main reason why this、uh, professor tormented him so much is simply because the a he didn't like Hall's poetry because Hall by that point had been heavily influenced by a lot of modernist writers, and b he himself was、uh, a disgruntled、uh, poet, frustrated poet himself. Uh, who had wanted to be a poet when he was younger, and then sort of had the dream taken away from him by the practicalities of life. But Hall kept writing. Eventually, he was able to make his way to Harvard, where he spent four years and was very successful while he was there. And then he got a Henry Fellowship in order to go over to Oxford, in order to do a B Lit. Which he did, and while he was also over at Oxford, he won the Newdigate Prize poem. That's a big uh, student uh, poetry prize 
that Oxford uh, gives uh, every year, I think, or maybe every term. And uh, he was actually one of many Americans who were over there at that time, and so it was like the Yanks take Oxford the year that he was there, or the years that he was there, I should say. Eventually, he did a, another fellowship on at, at Stanford, and then became a fellow, a junior fellow at Harvard again for another three years after that, during which time he finally published his first book of poetry called Exiles and Marriages. This is in 1955. And it got a lot of really decent attention. But as he himself once noted, uh, if you get success very early on, right out of the gate, you pay for it later. And that's exactly what happened. His second book of poetry came out and kind of sank like a stone. And so he spent most of his time trying to get attention to stop being ignored because he was ignored for quite a little bit by this time though uh, he because of his uh, publication he was able to get a job as a professor he wanted to get out of New England again uh, he wanted to go somewhere else and so he decided to go to the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor uh, by this point his marriage his first marriage uh, which produced his two children broke up after 15 years together. Hall got married uh, after he got back from Oxford, and they were together through a number of years, including some years in Ann Arbor, and, uh, but unfortunately it, it all just kind of crumbled. These things happen. But that left Hall free eventually to meet Jane Kenyon, who was his student while he was at Ann Arbor, as I said. Canyon, this is where she really enters the story, had grown up in and around that particular part of Michigan, in and around the country of Ann Arbor, uh, and eventually was able to attend University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, the local university, and while she was there, she was Hall's student in a number of classes, including at least one lecture class, which Don did not uh, remember, Hall did not re recall very clearly, but she had done that, and then eventually she became his student in a poetry writing workshop class. Hall had avoided doing any kind of a creative writing for a number of years while he was at Ann Arbor, and just kind of taught first-year writing, taught uh, literature for non-English majors, taught to Joyce and Keats, you know, all these writers who he had great admiration for. But eventually he did start teaching creative writing, and Kenyon got in. Uh, these were fairly elite classes because uh, you weren't interviewed, you couldn't just sign up, you actually had to put forward your work and you would be let in or not based on that. So the two of them met through that initially, and then uh, Kenyon went on to get her degree. And after a few years after that, they, they eventually did become, they did start seeing each other. This was the 1960s by this point, and as Donald Hall once said, if you asked somebody out to dinner back in the 60s, it also included breakfast. So that's what happened. And so initially they, they did go out together, but they, uh, they sort of saw other people as well, you know, free love and all that. But eventually... The two of them did indeed become a steady couple, and they did indeed eventually get married uh, after a minor emergency involving 
rushing a, an injured cat to a 24-hour veterinary clinic in the middle of the night, um, going through that trauma made them realize that they wanted to get married, and indeed they, they were eventually married. After they'd been together for a number of years, Hall's grandmother fell into a sharp decline. She was still living at the house in Wilmot, New Hampshire, that he eventually would call home, his grandfather's house, his grandparents' house, the ancestral home. And uh, they decided that they were not going to, the family decided that they were not going to sell it while she was still alive. And eventually Hall, who had wanted to go back to New Hampshire for years, uh, decided that he would buy it. He would buy it from his mother and from his two aunts who were still alive. Um, So he took out a mortgage and, and managed to get a hold of it. And after he went there to visit, initially he and Kenyon moved back to kind of camp out in the house for about a year, after which his grandmother died. Hall believed that uh, his grandmother was basically holding on because she knew that Donnie was coming home. But they went there for a year. This was a colonial house that had not been renovated for a number of years. It had no insulation, no central heating, none of that stuff, uh, none of those modern things that we take for granted these days. But after that year, Jane Kenyon made this announcement to Donald Hall, which was, you know, I would rather chain myself in the root cellar uh, than go back to Ann Arbor, which is exactly what they decided to do. They chose to stay in New Hampshire. So Hall obviously gave up his job, and what he started doing in order to make sure that the two of them could could live in that house and could make a living is they started uh, he started writing magazine pieces lots of nonfiction occasional short fiction articles essays reviews uh, memoir and Kenyon was able to completely devote herself to her poetry and it was after doing that that the two of them really started to improve and really started to do some of their best work of their lives uh, over the next course of the 23 years that they were together. Uh, And in fact, their notoriety became such that uh, eventually Bill Moyers came and did an entire hour-long program on the two of them. And uh, the the profile, which aired on uh, Bill Moyers' journal, PBS program from many years ago, was incredibly successful and a lot of people apparently found Jane Kenyon through that and it's a good thing that they did because unfortunately about a year after that program broadcast initially uh, she fell ill with leukemia they'd speculated initially that Donald Hall would actually predecease her he was 19 years older than she was and he, by that point, had already suffered a bout of colon cancer and a bout of cancer of the liver, which was basically metastatic colon cancer that had cost him two-thirds of his liver, and so they were convinced that he was going to be the first to go. But in the end, unfortunately, 18 months after Jane initially contracted her cancer, she was gone. Thankfully, before she passed, the two of them were able to create their, uh, were able to, to put together a selection and a collection of Jane's poems called Otherwise, 
named after one of her best poems, I think. And Hall himself was then able, as many poets before him had, to work through his grief by writing about her. The last two major books of poetry that he produced, called the one called Without and the other called The Painted Bed, uh, eventually came out, and they were both about Jane and her passing and her cancer. Thankfully, uh, Hall was able to live for a long time after that, um, in grief for obvious reasons. It was really difficult for him, but he outlived, in the end, he outlived Jane by 23 years himself. He died in 2018, 2018, just uh, three years ago, this coming June. And in all that time, he he never stopped loving her. He never made, he never stopped uh, making sure that her work was as out there as it could be without her to really advocate for it. But in the end, he too passed away in Wilmot and is buried next to her. So the two of them are eternally linked in the eyes of many writers and the many readers and many people who know about them. And I have a feeling that the two of them will continue to persist, that their work will continue to persist because their work is so good. But despite their connection, they are completely different authors. They have very, very different styles. And I think what I'd like to do with this is I'd like to showcase all their work, or as much as I can, in the same way that they used to do poetry readings. For years, for a number of years, uh, when they did poetry readings, there was a period of time where they couldn't do readings together because Hall had the greater reputation initially and Kenyon was sort of belittled by a lot of the questions. But then later on, as time passed, uh, Kenyon's reputation began to rise, and eventually they became true equals in the eyes of readers. And so uh, what they would do when they would do readings together is they would go back and forth. One poem by Hall, one poem by Kenyon, one poem by Hall, one poem by Kenyon. So that's what I think I'll do here. I'll read about ten poems, five from each of them. And I hope what you'll get is you'll get their each... You'll, you'll hear each of their distinctive sounds, and you'll be able to see just how unique a writer's each of them is. So, let's begin. I hope you'll enjoy this selection. My Son, My Executioner My Son... My executioner, I take you in my arms, quiet and small and just a stir, and whom my body warms. Sweet death, small sun, our instrument of immortality, your cries and hunger document our bodily decay. We twenty-five and twenty-two, who seem to live forever, observe enduring life in you, and start to die together. Finding a Long Gray Hair I scrub the long floorboards in the kitchen, repeating the motions of other women who have lived in this house, 
and when I find a long gray hair floating in the pale, I feel my life added to theirs. Oxcart Man In October of the year, he counts potatoes dug from the brown field, counting the seed, counting the cellar's portion out, and bags the rest on the cart's floor. He packs wool sheared in April, honey and combs, linen, leather, tanned from deer hide, and vinegar in a barrel hooped by hand at the forge's fire. He walks by his ox's head ten days to Portsmouth Market and sells potatoes and the bag that carried potatoes, flaxseed, birch brooms, maple sugar, goose feathers, yarn. When the cart is empty, he sells the cart. When the cart is sold, he sells the ox, harness and yoke, and walks home, his pockets heavy with the year's coin for salt and taxes. And at home, by fire's light, in November cold, stitches new harness for next year's ox in the barn, and carves the yoke and saws planks, building the cart again. The Suitor We lie back to back, curtains lift and fall like the chest of someone sleeping. Wind moves the leaves of the box elder, they show their light undersides, turning all at once like a school of fish. Suddenly I understand that I am happy. For months this feeling has been coming closer, stopping for short visits like a timid suitor. Love is like sounds. Late snow fell this early morning of spring. At dawn I rose from bed, restless, and looked out my window to wonder if there the snow fell outside your bedroom and you watching. I played my game of solitaire. The cards came out the same the third time through the deck. The game was stuck. I threw the cards together and watched the snow that could not do but fall. Love is like sounds whose last reverberations hang on the leaves of strange trees, on mountains as distant as the curving of the earth, where the snow hangs still in the middle of the air. Briefly it enters and briefly speaks. I am the blossom pressed in a book found again after two hundred years. I am the maker, the lover, and the keeper. When the young girl who starves sits down to a table, she will sit beside me. I am food on the prisoner's plate. I am water rushing to the wellhead, filling the pitcher until it spills. I am the patient gardener of the dry and weedy garden. I am the stone step, the latch, and the working hinge. I am the heart contracted by joy the longest hair white before the rest. I am there in the basket of fruit presented to the widow. I am the musk rose opening, unattended, the fern on the boggy summit. I am the one whose love overcomes you 
already with you when you think to call my name. White Apples When my father had been dead a week, I woke with his voice in my ear. I sat up in bed and held my breath and stared at the pale closed door. White apples and the taste of stone. If he called again, I would put on my coat and galoshes. Otherwise, I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, frawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All morning I did the work I love. At noon I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day I know it will be otherwise. To a Waterfowl Women with hats like the rear ends of pink ducks applauded you, my poems. These are the women whose husbands I meet on airplanes, who close briefcases and ask, What are you in? I look in their eyes, I tell them I am in poetry. And their eyes fill with anxiety and with little tears. Oh yeah, they say, developing an interest in clouds. My wife, she likes that sort of thing. <laughs> I guess maybe I'd better watch my grammar, huh? I leave them in airports watching their grammar and take a limousine to the Women's Goodness Club where I drink Harvey's Bristol Cream with their wives and eat chicken salad with capers with little tomato wedges and I read them The Erotic Crocodile and Eating You. Ah, uh, when I have concluded the disbursement of sonorities, crooning, Hi, on thy thigh I cry, Hi, and so forth. They spank their wide hands, they smile like jello, and they say, ah, My goodness, Mr. Hall, but you certainly do have an imagination, huh? Thank you indeed, I say. It brings home the bacon. But now... My poems, now I have returned to the motel, returned to Le Tenel Retour of the Holiday Inn, naked, lying on the bed, watching Godzilla sucks Mount Fuji, addressing my poems, feeling superior, and drinking bourbon from a flask designed to look like a transistor radio. Ah, my poems, it is true, that with the deepest gratitude and most serene pleasure, and with hints that I am a sexual Thomas Alva Edison, and not without collecting an exorbitant fee, I have accepted the approbation of feathers. And what about you? You laughing, you in the blue jeans, laughing at your mother who wears hats, and at your father who rides airplanes with a briefcase watching his grammar. Will you ever be old and dumb like your creepy parents? Not you. Not you. Not you. Not you. Not you. Not you. Having it out with melancholy. If many remedies are prescribed for an illness, you may be certain 
that the illness has no cure. A.P. Chekhov, The Cherry Orchard 1. From the Nursery When I was born, you waited behind a pile of linen in the nursery, and when we were alone, you lay down atop me, pressing the bile of desolation into every pore. And from that day on, everything under the sun and moon made me sad, even the yellow wooden beads that slid and spun along a spindle on my crib. You taught me to exist without gratitude. You ruined my manners towards God. We're here simply to wait for death. The pleasures of earth are overrated. I only appeared to belong to my mother, to live among blocks and cotton undershirts with snaps, among red tin lunch boxes and report cards and ugly brown slipcases. I was already yours, the anti-urge, the mutilator of souls. 2. Bottles Elleville, Ludomil, Doxapin, Norpramin, Prozac, Lithium, Xanax, Welbertrin, Parnate, Nardil, Zoloft. The coated ones smell sweet or have no smell. The powdery ones smell like the chemistry lab at school that made me hold my breath. 3. Suggestion from a friend. You wouldn't be so depressed if you really believed in God. 4. Often. Often I go to bed as soon after dinner as seems adult. I mean I try to wait for dark in order to push away from the massive pain in sleep's frail wicker coracle. 5. Once there was light. Once in my early thirties I saw that I was a speck of light in the great river of light that undulates through time. I was floating with the whole human family. We were all colors, those who are living now, those who have died, those who are not yet born. For a few moments I floated, completely calm, and I no longer hated having to exist. Like a crow who smells hot blood, you came flying to pull me out of the glowing stream. I'll hold you up. I'll never let my dear ones drown. After that, I wept for days. 6. In and Out The dog searches until he finds me upstairs, lies down with a clatter of elbows, puts his head on my foot. Sometimes the sound of his breathing saves my life, in and out, in and out. A pause, a long sigh. 7. Pardon A piece of burned meat wears my white clothes, speaks in my voice, dispatches obligations haughtily, or not at all. It is tired of trying to be stout-hearted, tired beyond measure. We move on to the monomane oxidized inhibitors. Day and night I feel as if I had drunk six cups of coffee, but the pain stops abruptly. With the wonder and bitterness of someone pardoned for a crime she did not commit, I come back to marriage and friends, to pink-fringed hollyhocks, 
come back to my desk, books, and chair. 8. Credo Pharmaceutical wonders are at work, but I believe only in this moment of well-being. Unholy ghost, you are certain to come again. Coarse, mean, you'll put your feet on the coffee table, lean back, and turn me into someone who can't take the trouble to speak, someone who can't sleep, or who does nothing but sleep, can't read, or call for an appointment for help. There is nothing I can do against your coming. When I awake, I am still with thee. 9. Wood Thrush High on Nardil and June light, I wake at four, waiting greedily for the first note of the wood thrush. Easeful air presses through the screen with the wide, complex song of the bird, and I am overcome by ordinary contentment. What hurt me so terribly all my life until this moment? How I love the small, swiftly beating heart of the bird, singing in the great maples its bright, unequivocal I. There you have it, the poetry of Donald Hall and Jane Kenyon. This is only a small selection of each of their bodies of work, but I hope it's uh, enough to get a few of you who are listening to this interested in maybe going and reading some more of their stuff. One of the things that I wanted to note almost from the get-go is that Hall and Kenyon's poetry, one of the major preoccupations that they have in common is death. But uh, there's seldom been a writer who didn't write about death in some capacity or another. I think the only one I can think of off the top of my head is maybe P.G. Woodhouse, who never has a character die in any of his stories, but that's because they're comedies. But pretty much every other writer, they all touch on the concept of death because it is a it is a human inevitability whether it's the death of someone you love a spouse or some or a relative like a parent it's always there it's kind of lingering in the background and it's pretty much lingering in the background of several of the poems that i read to you all or it's right there in the foreground i mean White Apples, for instance, by Hall, almost immediately uh, evokes death because, it, you know, after my father had been dead a week, you know, that opening line, it's, it's right there. And then, of course, the images of a white apple might be something off of a mausoleum or a statue that you might find in a graveyard. And otherwise, by Jane Kenyon, of course, does indeed uh, feature death as kind of a foregone conclusion it will happen you know as she says in the last line one day i know it will be otherwise you know things will change there's that very subdued morbidity but besides that the two of them really are in terms of how they sound and in terms of what they're obsessed with very very different 
Hall's poem, Oxcart Man, which incidentally was actually turned into a children's book. He had he had the poem illustrated, um, and I think it's still in print to this very day, but Oxcart Man very much is a picture of what his grandfather's world, or even the world before his grandfather, uh, what it was like up there in New Hampshire, and that very much roots Hall in a sense of place. As a matter of fact, at one point a critic pointed out that his work is very much about where he lives, about the place where he is, his setting. It's this place, you know, there's um, a lot of poems that do that. There's a poem called Mount Kearsarge that he wrote, which is about the mountain that's right there. There's another poem called At Eagle Pond, which is about, again, the home where he lived. There is a, a very long poem of his called Kicking the Leaves, which he wrote before he moved back to New Hampshire. It was kind of the first big poem that he wrote before making the move. And it, in a way, in a, a very strange kind of clairvoyant way, it, it foresees the life in New Hampshire, as he says, because of where, when he wrote it versus what it's about. And that's, that's very much what shaped him. His whole life, his life, which he considered, which is almost in many ways bucolic and idyllic, very much shaped his poetry. And then the life he lived, his life, his direct experience very much was about, uh, was what he wrote about. And, and that actually brings up a key difference between Hall and Jane and Kenyon. Hall was very much about the things he had done. That's what he predominantly wrote about. In a way, it was his outward experience and his reaction to those outward things. But Kenyon's poetry, by contrast, is very much more about her inner life. There are occasional flashes of the outward experience uh, and the reflection that comes from the outward experience. That poem, Finding a Long Gray Hair, is a perfect example of it. But then you look at some of her other poems, most notably Otherwise, and also Having It Out With Melancholy, that very long poem that I read last. It's all about the darkness, about her depression. Jane Kenyon was a, was by the way, was bipolar, and she was not diagnosed properly until she was in her 30s. And very much like a lot of bipolar people, she struggled for years to get, to find that equilibrium uh, with the different medications uh, that can that can really screw with your brain chemistry and thus have a, a different reaction in you, cause a different reaction in you. Uh, and I think she alludes to some of them in that very long poem, Having It Out With Melancholy. But she was more of a depressive than she was manic. When she was manic, um, she was apparently very different than what her normal temperament, what her normal attitude towards life was. But when she was depressed, it was the true black dog of despair. But it was, it was the constant theme. It was the thread, arguably, that tied every single one of her poems together. It was the... The dominating theme in her work 
was her experience with what we now call mental health issues or mental illness. It's there. It's there in having it out with melancholy. It's there in, it's there in the somber tone that very much uh, in, influences and, and informs the majority of her work. I mean, the suitor, for instance, where the feeling of happiness is said to come by only for short visits in her life, like a timid suitor. That's a, a key giveaway. It's a very subtle key giveaway, and Jane became more and more brilliant at that the older she got. Sadly, both of these poets are now gone. Both of them are gone, but their work is still here. And I think, you know, even in that brief selection, five poems of, from each of them, I think you, you can see why their work is so gorgeous. I mean, on the one hand, it's very imagistic. It's written in very simple language. It very seldom uses those classic forms of uh, the sonnets and the villanelles. Not that either of them were incapable of writing in those forms, but in that free verse style that both of them perfected to a T in their own individual ways, finding ways to make it work and finding ways to craft images out of very simple language that anybody can understand, or almost anybody can understand. They were able to give us portraits of both their inner life and their outer lives. And how the two interacted and melded with one another. And in the end, it produced some of the best poetry in the last part of the 20th century, and in Hall's case, a little ways into the 21st century. And hopefully, this encourages more people to read their work, go find it, because I think that some of their stuff is just absolutely brilliant. And hopefully, as time goes on, more people will find it brilliant as well. Hey, funny people. Thanks for spending some time with me here on Four Cents a Podcast. Until next we meet, stay safe, stay healthy, and bear in mind the words of the great poet Langston Hughes, Folks, birthing is hard, and dying is mean. So get yourself a little lovin' in between. I'll see you next time.